Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Carstensen continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The book of Nehemiah concludes the narrative of the Old Testament, but it ends in tragedy. After completing the wall and reading God's word as a whole assembly, the people make six promises to God. But when Nehemiah returns five years later, he finds they failed on five of them. Then, silence for 400 years. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but it's worth pausing on for a bit. After the message, read the book of Nehemiah. Also, check out nwhills.com hub, that's H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. If you got a Bible, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah today. Today we finish the narrative that started 1,500 years ago with Abraham. Um, It's kind of a weird thing because we're only halfway through the Old Testament. But by the time we get done with Nehemiah, the story is completely over. Like, it's done. I said it was kind of done uh, when we got to Chronicles in some ways, but it's really over when we get to Nehemiah. So even though we're halfway done, everything that we will read from this point forward in the Old Testament is commentary about things that we have already read in the story. Does that make sense? All right. So it's, it's just kind of a... Uh, it's kind of a weird to think that the story is ending even though we are in the middle in some ways. Um, but it's really important to know that we get to the end of this and it's really a horrible ending. Um, if you have read ahead, if you know the story of Nehemiah, it ends in despair. It ends with all kinds of questions. Um, we have no presence of God. We've got 400 years of absolute silence after this, right? Where God's not speaking, we've got no prophets preaching, we've got no angels visiting. We have just a massive longing for something that no one had. And it's, we're gonna get to the end of it and it should leave us with a lot of questions by the time we're done with Nehemiah, which as we're gonna find out really is the whole point of all of it. And so by the time we're done today, we're gonna ask a couple of questions But one of the big ones that we're going to ask is, what does a world look like without Jesus? Because ultimately that's what we see, is we see a world without Christ. Um, We're going to see what that would feel like for us. And so we're going to end our service today in a little bit, I should say we're going to end the message part of our service with a little bit of attention of life without Jesus. I got a message that's a bit shorter than normal. So we're going to just live in some of this tension of what it would be like to be an Old Testament believer longing for something that you never saw happen. And uh, we'll finally get to that remedy. We'll get to Christmas. We'll get there in five days uh, for our services. So come back. We'll see kind of this longing uh, and how it all came to fruition in the birth of Jesus. But this nation waited forever, really without much hope of like uh, seeing anything in their lifetime. And so we're going to live out that a little bit. And so uh, in order to do that, we're going we're gonna to start. We're going to read chapter 9 together. And this is... I think it's probably the most complete summary of this entire 1,500-year history. Uh, it's, it's a long chapter. It's going to take us a few minutes to read through it. Uh, initially, I thought, you know what, maybe we should sit so we should be comfortable. 
But in the story we're reading, we're reading about a bunch of people who stood and listened to it for eight hours. So I felt like a bunch of wimps if we couldn't stand for eight minutes while this group of people stood for eight hours. So Karen Berg is actually going to come on up here. Karen, would you come on up here? She's going to read Nehemiah 9. I'm going to join you guys and hear it. Uh, but I'm going to ask that we would stand. Uh, if you got a Bible, read it with, along in your Bible um, as Karen reads, and by reading it, I mean follow along silently. You can look on it on the screen as well, but enjoy the summary of the whole Old Testament. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all that is on it the seas, and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, 
but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, 
upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk by God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. This is the word of the Lord. There's a part of me that thinks we could just end right there. It w- we would leave intention if we knew the story, but I'm, I'm going to finish out the story because it is this, it's this moment here that they're reading and, and they're reestablishing this is who God is and this is how he has worked and this is who we are. And then we're going to make this new promise. We're going to make this new covenant. And we're going to see this throughout the story uh, in Nehemiah. But it ends really poorly despite their efforts to try to reestablish a love for God and a love for his word uh, and a life of obedience and commitment to him. So it ends awfully. And the reality is we, we don't like stories that don't end well. Right? They, they don't sit well with us. We, we love stories with great endings. You think about all the movies that are going on with Christmas right now, and every single Christmas movie is a movie that ends well, right? You think about all the drama that happens and like someone's dog dies or someone's boyfriend leaves or some tragedy happens or some parents leave to Paris without the kid and and we're all wondering what's going to happen and it's trauma and drama and hardship and then by the time the movie gets to the end there's resolve right that's literally the formula of every Christmas movie there's like oh it's a new boyfriend or we found our cat or whatever mom and dad come home and everything is good, and, and we like that ending, right? We like, it doesn't matter the middle, we like the great ending. <clears throat> There's also another type of movie that um, I think is more common than maybe used to be, but it is a really tragic ending, so long as the middle is good, we're okay with it. Right, I, I just spent a, a long flight from the Middle East back home, and at one point we had the leg from uh, Frankfurt, Germany to Denver, and that is an ungodly amount of time in a plane, right? Ten hours, and uh, I did something I've never done before. I watched an entire series straight, ten episodes, one hour apiece, after being awake for like 35 some odd hours, and I'm watching this series, and it's, uh, it's about Tim McGraw and Shania Twain back in the 1800s, so I mean, you can't go wrong with that, and they're on the Oregon Trail, and they're taking a group of people 
along this journey, and they take some 50 people, and spoiler, if you're watching this, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, and don't get back at me with the soccer thing, but they, they make this journey towards the end, and by the time they get to the very end, virtually everyone dies. Like out of the almost 50 people that started, about three of them make it. And at the very end, like Tim is hold, last episode, he's holding his 18 year old daughter as she dies in his arms. And, you know, after being awake for 40 hours and having daughters, I'm weeping uncontrollably. And I'm thinking like, is this me? Is this 10 hours of TV? Like I'm trying to keep my eyes open. It's horrible. And so beautiful and good at the same time. Um, and it ends in absolute tragedy. Uh, on top of that, like they land in the Willamette Valley. And I'm thinking like, it's not worth it. Like I, I live here, like it's really not like, and I like where I live, but it's not that great. Like you went through Colorado and all these places and everyone's dying to get here. Like pre-Claritin, this would be a miserable place to live. I'm just saying, um, pre-Gore-Tex, I don't know. Um, But we justify these types of stories and we like it because when the 18-year-old girl is dying in dad's arms, we look back and we go, but she lived, right? Like she rode horses on the plains and her hair was flying in the wind and she fell in love and she killed a buffalo and ate its heart. I mean, that's awesome. Like we like that. So we're okay with a tragic ending if... The life was pretty good, but what we have in this story is 1,500 years of really not that good, right? A lot of us have been reading this story for the last four months, and for 1,500 years, we get about plus or minus 100 years of relative peace out of 1,500, right? We, we, out of how many kings, we get a handful of them that are pretty good most of the time. Most of the time, we have absolute tragedy, and then it ends in absolute tragedy. The, literally, the last words that we are going to read, you can turn there if you want, the last words from Nehemiah is basically Nehemiah saying, good Lord, help me, please have mercy on me. And then it's done, and it ends, and we're sitting here going like, I don't know that I like this story. Like, there's not a whole lot of redemption in the middle, It ends tragically, God, what is going on here? Lord, have mercy on us. So what brought Nehemiah to this point? What brought Nehemiah to the point where in the last chapter, and we're going to kind of work through this whole book, but through the last chapter where he's saying over and over, Lord, I tried. Like we, we tried to follow you and it did not work out. God, would you just remember us in your mercy? Like what, how did he get there? In, in order to do that, I'm going to try to summarize kind of the whole book. We're going to work through it. Uh, the invitation for everyone, as has been every week, is I want you to, I'm encouraging you to read the book this week. It's only 13 chapters. It's not that long. Uh, and it flows really well. It's a narrative. It's easy to read. Um, but I'm going to kind of set it up and show you the big arc of what was happening kind of chapter by chapter. And then we're going to end with absolute tragedy. And we're just going to sit in that for a while. Happy Sunday. Um, <laughs> To get this, though, we got to remember what happened in Ezra, because originally the story of Ezra and Nehemiah were the same story. It's the same book. Um, In Ezra, we get a group of people who were 
massively uh, destroyed in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They were taken in captivity. A small remnant of them who had survived, about 10,000 of them, they survived for about 70 years. They were in Babylon, which was conquered by Persia. So now they're under Persian rule. And the Persians let them go back and rebuild. And if you were here with us last week, we talked about what that was like and what they were after. Right? They were after this longing to be in God's presence because they had heard, man, God was with his people here. What would that be like? What would it be like to be in freedom? What would it look like to reestablish church again? We haven't done that in 70 years. What would it look like to have a temple? What would it look like to sacrifice? And so Ezra leads them back and they go and they rebuild the altar and they start slaughtering animals. But it seems like God's presence is still not here. And so they're longing for more. They're like, there's got to be something more. And they finish the temple and, and Ezra's like, okay, it seems like things are okay. And Ezra leaves for a little while. He comes back and the reforms that he made, man, really ended poorly. And people were showing up to church on Sunday, but their lives at home looked nothing like life on Sunday. If you read the story last week, it ended really bizarrely, and I didn't touch it the week before, but I just got to say, it ends in a really bizarre, like people had married all kinds of foreigners, which meant that they were taking on their foreign worship, and Ezra gets an idea, and I'm here to say, I don't believe this idea was from God, right? I could be wrong. Nowhere in the scripture does it say, God told Ezra to do this. I think this is Ezra on his own. And Ezra says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divorce all the women and we're going to leave them and the children and we're going to live on our own over here. I don't see God's heart in that anywhere. Perhaps, I don't know. I'll let you guys figure that one out. But at the end of Ezra, we leave in just kind of this bizarre, strange, like now everyone's divorced. All, what do you do with all these wives and children who have foreign gods? I don't think God's heart was driving that primarily. So we leave there and we get to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, again, as, as Ezra Lee uh, is over... You have this longing for God's presence, this longing for wholeness, this longing for um, right worship of God, and it really wasn't happening. So then we get Nehemiah on the scene. Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's 900 miles away. He's back in Persia, and he hears what's happening back with the people who are trying to rebuild. They're trying to rebuild the city. They're trying to rebuild the temple. He hears of that, and that's the report we get in verse 1 and 2 of Nehemiah chapter 1. And so follow along with me as I read chapter 1, verse 2. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You hear the first four verses of chapter one, and I think these words are both encouraging, inspiring, and also a little convicting, because here's my reality, and I'm guessing it's probably like a lot of yours. We hear bad news all the time, right? And oftentimes, and maybe it's, it's my role as a pastor, um, I hear bad news from everyone in the church, and I hear bad news from everyone's families in the church. And it can be easy when we hear tragic news to just get numb to it after a while, right? You, you hear, 
Like, oh man, well, this person's got cancer and this marriage is failing and, and this person lost their job. And, and you hear it over and over and over. And it can be easy to lovingly like care in that moment, but big picture, like, well, I got to keep going and to just kind of move on. And I'm not just saying in a broad sense, like this happens in my own life too, right? Like there's, there, there currently is someone who I deeply love who is tremendously suffering. And, and if I'm honest, there are moments when I stop even thinking about it. And it's like, I'm, I'm living my life over here. And then I kind of come back. I'm like, yeah, this person's really suffering right now. And it can be easy to kind of separate ourselves. But what does Nehemiah do? It's a humbling response. It says that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I love this response. And, and this is about a people who are far away. Right? This is about it. This is not necessarily even his own family. It's not like his wife and his kids. It's like, this is a people that I love. They're 900 miles away. This city, this longing for God's presence, it's not working out the way we all thought it would. And he sits down and he weeps and he mourns. And then he makes a plan and he begs God, God, would you do something about it? And however I can be involved, I'm willing. I love that about Nehemiah. I love that about this resolve to do something. Right? I think it can be pretty easy sometimes for us to get an idea of, hey, I should care about something, um, but then not do anything about it. And Nehemiah resolves, like, I'm going to do something about this. And he puts himself on his knees and he says, I'm going to beg the king can I go back and help rebuild? Our city has no protection. It has no walls. Its people are in great shame. What they long for, they are not getting. Therefore, I want to be a part of the solution. And so he does. He goes to the king. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he goes to the king. He begs him. The king's like, yeah, sure, go. Take a crew of people. Go back and help rebuild this city. And in the story of Nehemiah, what we're going to see him primarily building is the wall for the first half. And so he goes and he starts, and in chapters 2 and 3, he rebuilds these walls. And he takes an effort to rebuild this city and to establish its authority and protection again. And then very quickly, what always happens in life, in chapter 4, we're going to see opposition. Opposition always happens when we try to do something right and good. Right? We think about our lives and we think about trying to be obedient to God and we think about, I'm going to make this resolve to do something good and opposition always happens because Scripture tells us that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle which should help us make sense of why things aren't just always nice and easy. Right? You would think, thinking of Jacob, right? Young married guy, he got married about a month ago. You'd think you get two young people. Sorry, I, this isn't in my notes. I'm just thinking it. You get two young people who get married. They're standing in front of everyone. They have this longing and desire. Hey, for the next 70 years or until we die, we're going to love each other. But then it's 70 years of trying to figure out how to deal with opposition. Right? Good luck. You got this. We're with you. Um, why is that? <laughs> because we have a spiritual enemy. And Nehemiah experiences this in chapter 4, and he gets all kinds of opposition very early on. We get opposition uh, in a multiple of different ways, and you're going to read this throughout the story. But despite opposition, he continues on. And he like, reestablishes like, people who are going to help set up and kind of guard the building of these walls, and he keeps going. 
In chapter 5, this is crucial. He recognizes that, yes, there's opposition from the outside, from people around who do not want them to build. But he also recognizes that one of the bigger enemies isn't just an external enemy, but it's an internal enemy. And he recognizes how his own people are treating other people. He recognizes that the, um, that the working class and the poor are being taken advantage of. And he gives a perfect example of his life. He says, I'm the governor. I can take all these resources and use them for myself. And he kind of lays out what the, the governor should get. And he says, but I'm living without so that others can have. And see, we live in an interesting time right now. We live in a time where every single company is all into like giving what their own signal of virtue is for. Like we are for these things and everyone talks about what we are for all the time until it comes to our bottom line, right? You think about companies that are like, oh yeah, we're for the oppressed. We're for the poor. We're for the marginalized. Look at us. We'll fly flags for anything. We are for everyone until you try to take away from our bottom line, and then we're absolutely not for that. Right? You think about a couple months ago. Um, I, I hate to name names, but come on, Starbucks. Um, they say they're for everyone, but then recently you got a couple of individual franchises who are voting to unionize. Right? And the second Starbucks hears about that, they're like, nope, we are going to apparently uh, do some pretty highly illegal union busting to shut down the stores completely. And you say, well, I thought you were for everyone. This is the world we live in. We're really good at saying that we are for things until it comes to our bottom line. But what does Nehemiah do when it came to his bottom line? He said, I'm willing to take less so that others can have more. We think about our lives and we think about what are we willing to give up so that others can have more. We're really good at keeping for ourselves. What is God calling us to give up. The story continues on and opposition continues in chapter six and seven. Five different times Nehemiah is opposed. As you're going to read this, he is threatened. There are rumors that are spread about him. He is attacked, but he keeps going. He keeps moving forward. He keeps leading this people. He keeps setting the vision out in front of him. He's like, no, we are going to finish this place. And eventually, by the end of chapter 7, they finish. It's this exciting moment for everyone. And then you kind of get this one big section in chapter 8 through 12. It's kind of this kind of conglomerate all together in one piece. In chapter 8 through 12, uh, Ezra joins Nehemiah. They gather them all together, and we get this moment where um, Karen just read for us, and, and they're reading God's word together. And they're discovering, they read the whole first five books of the Bible. So they read all Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as they are reading, like they often do, they begin to weep because they're recognizing we are not living like we're supposed to. Like we're we're showing up to church on Sunday, but all the law that God has given us, we're not doing. We are not worshiping God like we ought to. Right? We are not obeying his commandments. We are not living how we should. We are not loving our children the way we should. We are not taking care of our church the way we should. And people start to weep and they have a visceral response to a disobedience. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they do two things. They say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to start with a recognition of God's love for us. And so we're going to start actually, and we're going to celebrate. And the people are crying. They're trying to drive their eyes. What's celebrating? Like we, we're distraught. Like we're discouraged. And he's like, no, no, no. We're going to do what God tells us to do. And we're going to focus on the Lord right now. We're not going to focus on our garbage first. We're going to focus on who God is. And so they say, we're going to take a week because God has commanded us to. And we're going to live in tents. And we're living these tents on our roofs because we're going to recognize that God God has been faithful despite our faithlessness. 
And so they take this week. This whole nation lives in tents to kind of uh, represent a time period when they were living in tents and when God was taking care of them. And so they're living in these tents and, okay, we're going to celebrate and we're going to have big meals and we're going to thank God for his faithfulness. And then that week is over. And they gather again, and this time they gather and they, they mourn together for the reality of their situation. And in their mourning, they, they read what we just read, and they recognize, man, we are not loving God like we ought to. And they, they make a bunch of vows together, and they make six covenant promises as a nation all together in this large setting. And they make each of these promises. I'm going to read them to you. They say, we aren't doing family the way God asked us to, so we're going to change. They said, we're not practicing Sabbath like God has asked us to, so we're going to reestablish this Sabbath worship. We're not giving financially to support the church like we know we should. We're going to change. We're not serving in the church and caring for one another like we should. We will change. We're not making a priority to teach our children the ways of the Lord. We will change. And lastly, we are not supporting our pastors financially like we should, and we will change. And we all know what it's like to be in these seasons and moments where we, you know, maybe it's we've heard a good sermon, or maybe we read a good book, or maybe it's just like we've hung out with someone who's inspiring, and, and we look in the mirror, and we look at parts of our life, and we go, man, I'm really disappointed in this part of my life. Right? We, we get these seasons where it's like, man, my devotion to the Lord is not what it should be. Right? And, and maybe it's not just that, but it's these other parts of life. Like, I'm really not being the, the husband that I know that I could be. Or I'm not being the wife. Or, man, I'm not being the dad I want to be. Or I'm not being the boss or the employee that I know that I could be. Or maybe my health isn't where it should be. Or my finances aren't where they should be. And so I'm going to change. Right? And I'm going to do something about this. Anyone ever been there before? I hope so. A bunch of slackers otherwise. Like, we get through these moments where we get inspired. Right? There's, there's a few books in my life that I remember reading and you're just like, yes! Like, I'm going to climb every mountain. I'm going to do, do it all. Like, I'm going to be the best of this. And we get all excited and we make these promises to ourselves and we make these promises to our spouse. Okay, I'm going to do this and, and our lives are going to be forever changed. And this nation does. And they make these commitments, and they're so excited. Okay, we're going we're gonna to change all this. And then Nehemiah, as he made a promise to the king back in chapter 2, he has to go back to Persia. So he takes that 900-mile journey back, and he's gone for some 5 to 12 years. And then Nehemiah comes back. And what happens when he comes back? The same thing that happened to Ezra happens to Nehemiah. Five of the six reforms that they make, they have failed to complete. And so in chapter 13, as you read it this week, systematically he goes through each one of these and he goes, hey, what, what happened to this covenant that we made? Right, what, what happened to your longing to do this over here? And he goes a little wild. He starts pulling out hair and people and going nuts and after every one of these moments where he's saying, like, guys, I, I, I thought we knew who God was. I, th I thought we knew what we were trying to do. At the end of each one of these, he starts begging God, God, would you remember me in mercy? And he goes through five of these. And at the very end, he just says, Lord, would you remember me for good? The end. For 1,500 
years, the story ends with, we're going to be good. God, we're going to do the things you want us to do. I'm going to be the kid. I'm going to be the husband. I'm going to be whatever. And it's failure after failure after failure. And Nehemiah's like, what's up? The end. Man, what a story this is. Right? You go back all the way. First few pages. God wants to dwell with his people. Right? You see this all the way in the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning of the garden, he's, he's with Adam and Eve. And then sin enters the world. And when God wants to be with Adam and Eve, what do they do? They hide. They've got shame. They've got guilt. They hide. They're like, I cannot be in God's presence. And the same attitude continues, and we talked about it last week in Exodus chapter 20, when God has freed his people, and they, they cross the Red Sea, and, and you get this moment where God's like, I'm, I want to be with you, and he's speaking to them, and he speaks to them who he is, and he's talking to the Ten Commandments, and the people say, we, we can't be near you. You've got to speak through Moses, and God still longs to be with them, and and we get this moment where Moses comes down from speaking with God and the people like we just read, they build this golden calf and, and God's like, you know what, fine, like, I'm not going to be with you. My presence isn't going to go with you. I'll keep my promise. You can go, you can have the lamb, but I'm not going with you. And we remember this as we've read this over and over that Moses says, God, if you're not going with us, it's not worth us going. And God says to Moses, he says, okay, here's who I am. I'm merciful and I'm gracious I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I will not leave you. And so his presence is relegated to a tent. And they dwell with God as he is in a tent. And there's this weird reality of a people coming to a place to be with God. They do it on an annual basis. They kind of do it on a weekly basis. His presence then is relegated to a temple, a physical building. And he is patient with them for a thousand years. And then a thousand years goes by and he says, okay, I've had enough. And his presence leaves and the temple is destroyed. And he says, but I am gracious, I'm merciful. You can go back and you can rebuild. And they do, but his presence isn't there. And they go back and they rebuild and it's still not that good. But then we read as they go back and they're longing to be with him. We read it, Karen read it twice, Nehemiah chapter nine. God's still saying, but I'm still merciful. And I'm still gracious and I'm still abounding in steadfast love. But then the story ends. And if the story ends and if we have to end here, is God really that merciful and really that gracious? Like if I never turn the page and I don't get to Christmas Day, what do I have? I've got a lot of promises from God saying he's going to do a lot of things, but I've got a history of us trying over and over and over to be obedient and we keep failing. Right? Well, maybe that's the point of the whole Old Testament. Maybe the point of 1,500 years of me trying on my own to do something and not able to do it and it ending on that, maybe that's the point of life without Jesus. We can never do it. Some of us mentally, spiritually, have, haven't turned that page. We have never gotten to Jesus. 
Right? Some of us live our life in this Old Testament mentality of like, I've got this vague idea of who I think God is and my efforts in life are going to be towards trying to obey him, yet I keep failing and my cry is kind of like Nehemiah's, God, I'm trying, have mercy on me. Some of us have a faith like this. Some of us have a faith where it's like, I've gotten to the end and I hope this is enough and we will then enter a period of 400 years of nothing and wonder, God, what are you going to do about all this? In Old Testament life, quite honestly, is pretty unfulfilling. It, it never lands, it never gets there. It leaves us with a longing of something. It leaves us with a longing of completion. It leaves us with these huge promises that never seem to get answered. But here's the sweet thing that the page does turn, right? Right, it turns. We, we get the answer of God's gracious and merciful love. And we will get there on Friday night. We will get there on Saturday. But we're going to sit here for a few minutes. Band's going to come up. Come on, actually, come on up, Band. And we're just going to sit in this 400 years of what life would look like trying on my own over and over and over to love God on my own Yet without Jesus, that never really gets anywhere. Father God, we as a people, we're, gonna, um, we're just going to recognize that if our faith is without Jesus, it's a story that quite honestly in the middle is horrible and that ends horribly. It's laced with some spirituality of, I, I know that there's a God out there who, who I think he loves me, but I, I don't know how to interact with him very well, and I keep disobeying. God, I, I pray that we'd be a people who long to know you, Jesus. And I pray that we'd be people who turn that page and who live in a New Testament reality. God, for another four months, we're going to go back and we're going to look at what your heart was to this nation the whole time. And, and we're not going to go through history every week because that narrative is over, but we're going to see your heart for your people. And God, your heart over and over and over is to dwell with you. And God, when we turn that page, we see what dwelling with you is like as you've given us your spirit, as you've given us yourself in the flesh in Jesus. So we long for you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.